Uh, We are in the 11th message of our trek through the book of Esther. So if you have your Bibles, let's open them to Esther chapter 8. Esther chapter 8, the doctrinal thread that holds the whole book together, of course, is the doctrine of God's what? Providence, yeah, God's providence. I I talked about this very early on, took the Westminster Shorter Catechism to remind us. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Now, what flows from the doctrine of providence are some very practical implications. One would simply be this. There is no one here by accident. There's no one sitting here today by happenstance. I got a text from one of my good friends, college roommate, Tom Wright, and Tom's here today. He and Dawn, it's like, you're not here by accident. You know, it's God's providence that you would be sitting with us today. Now, that also means this. There is nothing in your life or in my life In other words, there's no circumstance or situation that sits at our doorstep, that enters our world, that's there by chance, by some randomness. Now, why am I starting here? Well, because it's the theme of the book, but also, y'all, I'm living in my life, in my world right now, where there are circumstances and situations in my life that are undermining my confidence in God's providence at least in this way, that his providence is working for my good. And I would think that there's most of us in the room, either now or at some time in life, you have things happen that chip away at your, your confidence that God's in control, at least in this way, that he's in control in a way that's for your good. It could be relational, it could be family situation, financial, legal, emotional, life in a fallen body. You know, every part of our body fallen in the fall, in a fallen world, has a way of chipping away at our confidence in God's providence and that it's good. Well, along comes the book of Esther, in fact, the whole Bible, of course. But God's story of Esther is an antidote to that wavering faith through the life of Esther and Mordecai. What are we seeing? We're seeing God's, note that, you know, our, our, our theme, veiled providence. It's hidden. You don't, we don't see God at work. The veiled providence, and we see their visible faith in it. And through the two, we see God deliver them from undeliverable situations. And God is still delivering his people, me and you from undeliverable, there's no way out, situations. How? Veiled providence and visible faith. Now, last week, Rob took us through chapter seven. Uh, If you missed it, I want to encourage you to go back and and, and listen to that online. Uh, It was the end of Haman. You remember pride had done in Haman's heart, y'all, what pride does in every heart. Remember, uh, Rob used these words, damages, destroys, and brings death. Now, I want to I encourage you to go listen to the message because it just may save your life. Because Rob also reminded us that pride, there's a little bit of Haman in all of us. And pride is 
almost always in our blind spot, isn't it? You remember that? It's always in our blind spot. Well, chapter seven, verse 10, look at that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai and the king's anger subsided. Y'all, as the writer's writing this, we come to this place and there's almost like an exhale. (sighs) Wow, Haman's dead. The king's anger has subsided. It's almost like it's okay. Here's the problem. It's not okay. I mean, I'm glad the the Haman's dead. We're glad the king's anger has subsided. But what is the greater problem that still stands in the story? You tell me. What's the problem that's still here? Say somebody say it out loud. Get the decree. There's a day coming. You know, Haman's dead. The decree lives on. So there's a day coming when every Persian's going to kill every Jew, man, woman, and child, and take all their plunder. Now, as we go into this, uh, we're going to see that we're standing like this, looking back at the story, and we go, we know how it ends. We know what's going to happen. But let's go back, and as we're going through this, through this let's stay in the story. Let's stay with Esther and Mordecai who didn't know how it's going to (laughs) end. They had no idea, veiled providence, yet they continued to walk by faith. Now, the chapter has four parts. Those of you note takers, just get this in your mind's eye and I'll repeat it as we go. There's the reversal. Things are going this way, God turns them. Things are going down, God brings them up. There's a reversal. It's a theme through the book, verses one and two. There's the plea, verses three through eight. There's the decree, verses nine through 14. And then we're gonna end with the celebration in 15 and 17. And our celebration will include the Lord's table as we end. The reversal, the plea, the decree, and then the celebration. Let's start with the reversal, the Lord's word to you and I this Lord's day. Chapter eight, verse one, verses one and two. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. The king took off his signet ring, which which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Ahasuerus, you all, to put in these categories, takes Haman's possessions and his power and gives them to Mordecai. You talk about a reversal. You know, if we've been in the story, we know it's Haman over Mordecai, and suddenly it's Mordecai over Haman. It was Persian law that when a criminal was, you know, indicted, killed, put away, that his property went to the throne, the throne could do with it as he wished. Now, I asked the small groups this week, community groups, to, I gave them some questions. And one of the questions I, I invited people to do or go back and do was find all the reversals in the book of Esther because you know this is a theme. It's going this way, God turns it this way. It's going down, God brings it up. And it's a reminder to you and I, as I said earlier, that God today continues to work reversals. Let me give you another word for it. Redemption in your life and in my life. Now, when we look at the reversals in Esther, one of the things you could, we can notice if we, we took it apart is that it's not like this. It's not like there was Haman who was over Mordecai and oh look, God reversed it and now Mordecai's over Haman. No, no, no. When God reverses and redeems, it's Haman was over Mordecai and now Haman's gone 
and Mordecai is in a role that's far beyond. In other words, the reversals are exponentially more significant and greater, you see, than they were before God reverses them. When, God, uh, when, when, when um, Mordecai gets the signet ring, this is just a little hint, but you see it all the way through the text. You know what? Haman got the signet ring when he wrote the decree, and Ahasuerus said, here's the signet ring to seal the decree. But here we see that the whole possession, position, all that of, of Haman's is given, including the signet ring. Here you go, Mordecai, it's given. When the decree goes out, we're going to read this in a moment. The decree goes out earlier from Haman's decree. It goes out on the camels and the horses, whatever. But when Mordecai's decree goes out, it goes out on the royal studs. We're going to see in a moment that, that Mordecai walks into the, to the, walks out into the city just dressed in royal garb. Listen to me, Haman never walked in royal garb. So reversals are exponentially greater. I want you to think about this in terms of marriages. You know, what marriage isn't, doesn't struggle in this room at times. And, and when a marriage is turned or redeemed, and some of us, some of you are living this, your marriage is struggling, families falling apart, and God in his kindness, not always, but often can redeem. And even when, it, when, it, when the family doesn't make it, God can still redeem the individuals. And when he does redeem it and restore and return it, your marriage and life, the influence through you is exponentially greater than when that marriage was going south. Everybody, anybody with me on this? It's like when you see someone whose marriage was saved, I'm telling you that the influence and the in, impact of that life in your marriage is huge and even outweighs the difficulties that you're going through as it's going the wrong way. Some of you over the last few years have been involved in Larry Kayser's marriage mentor groups and, and, and developing your own marriages and re-engaging those things such that you're prepared to help me in my marriage. Because of work that you've done in yours, may your tribe increase. When God redeems and reverses, listen, it's exponentially better as he does that. That's the reversal. Then the plea, look at verses three through eight, the plea. Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman the Agagite and his plot which he had devised against the Jews. The king extended the golden scepter to Esther, so Esther arose and stood before the king. Then she said, if it pleases the king and if I have found favor before him and the matter seems proper to the king and I am pleasing in his sight, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the calamity which will befall my people? And how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? So King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther, and him they have hanged on the gallows because he had stretched out his hands against the Jews. Now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring for a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. Now, Esther has asked the king to do the impossible. Don't want to miss this. The most powerful man in the land cannot stop the decree of death that has gone out. 
When she says, would you revoke the letters? It literally, the Hebrew literally means this. Would you cause to return the letters that went out? In other words, she's saying, would you make it like those letters never went out? And he says, he can't because it's been sealed with the king's signet ring. It's like blowing the dandelion and all the seeds go everywhere. It's like, would you make it like that didn't get blown? No, no, that's impossible. However, you, and the use in the emphatic position, it's like you now have the signet ring, Mordecai, you and Mordecai can write a decree that counteracts the original decree. And we're gonna look at the decree in a moment. One thing I want us to notice though about Esther as we come here is that the Esther of chapter eight is not the Esther of chapter four. Do you notice that? Watch these characters develop. Watch them grow spiritually. Chapter four, when we first met Esther uh, and, the, and, the, and the, uh, Mordecai went to her and said, um, would you, um, uh, you need to go in and implore the king, plead with the king for the people. Do you remember Esther's response in chapter four? Her first response, her first response was, I can't do that because if I do, I will what? I, you remember that? That's what she said, that was her response. And now do you see this woman? She's pleading, she's imploring, she's weeping, crying out. Notice this, not for her life, but for who? For 15 million Jews. Now there is something very significant that's happening in the heart of Esther. Don't miss this. In other words, we see now Esther understands that her goal is not simply, you know, it's, it's not about her own deliverance, is it? And she sees this. It's about the deliverance of others. If I put it in other words, let's take it this way. She's now got all this position, power, uh, you know, p- p- possessions. All of her possessions position and power are not as important to her as her purpose. You see that? In other words, her purpose matters more than all she has and now she's using it to save others. And it begs the question for you and for me. Listen, if you've placed your faith in Christ, that's the most important thing. You've put your faith in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What he did, he did for you lived the life you couldn't live, died the death you deserve. He did it for you. And you trust that. You know, you are saved, born again, redeemed, clothed with his righteousness, filled with, you know, you, filled with his spirit. Awesome. It's not about you only. Saved that we might save others. And you see, this gets to the heart of our mission, you all. As a community of faith, fellowship, Bible church, why do we exist? I mean, why are we here today? I mean, it's wonderful to be together. I'm glad we're, why do we exist? Why are we to glorify God by proclaiming Christ, maturing in the faith and giving our lives away, save that we might save others. And we see it expressed here in Esther. Uh, My family has been going to family camp for 14, 15 years and uh, this thought, it came to my mind, this camp that we go to is called Cryer Creek. It's part of Pine Cove down in Texas between Austin and, and Houston. And uh, we were there the first part of June again this year. I was uh, teaching there. And um, the story though on this camp, and I might've mentioned this before, but it's so illustrative at this point. Um, it's, a, it's about a six, 700 acre former deer camp. You know what they do in Texas? They buy these 
thousand acre ranches. They put fences around the whole thing. Then they grow big deer and you go in and shoot them. I'm a hunter. I kind of like that. You know, I wish I had it. Um, but, but this, this, this deer camp was called Cryer Creek and had a massive fence. It has a massive fence around it now. A couple bought it, uh, Mark and Kelly Elkins out of Houston. You, you wouldn't know them, but um, some of you know uh, Russ and Carol Worsham. It's Carol's uh, brother-in-law and sister who bought this. And they bought it. When they did, do you know what they did? They took the whole thing and they deeded it to Pine Cove Camps, camp ministry. They've been doing camp for 45 years. Y'all, I can't, I can't tell you how many thousands of college students have been discipled in the former deer camp over the last 15 years. They have built now camps for elementary kids, junior high, senior. I can't tell you the thousands of kids that have come to faith in Christ on the former deer camp that was deeded over in that way. Now, let me tell you what I would have done if I had the money and I bought that. I would have built the fence higher and I would have had my Shangri-La, man. I'd be go hunting every year, you know. I'm telling you, I, you did it. And it's just a reminder me to go, wait a minute. Power, possessions, position, all that God has given us, all where you are, what you have, given that it might be stewarded in such a way, oh Lord, for your kingdom, use this. What a wonderful reminder. And what a picture in the life of Esther. Would you do this to save others, not just me? Well, that's the plea. Let's look at the decree, verses 9 through 14. The reversal, the plea, then comes to the decree, verse 9. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, that is the month Savan, on the 23rd day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces, which extended from India to Ethiopia. 127 provinces, to every province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, as well as to the Jews according to their script and their language. He wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring and sent letters by couriers on horses riding on steeds sired by the royal stud. In them the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and to defend their lives and to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including children and women, and to plunder their spoil. On one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month of Adar. Now, the edict from Haman went out about two and a half months ago, just so you're in the timeline. So that went out two and a half months ago. So we got about nine months till D-Day. This is a day they're all going to kill all the Jews. So this is a nine-month window. These laws, the edicts going out. Verse 13, a copy of the edict to be issued as law in each and every province was published to all the peoples so that the Jews would be ready for this day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers hastened and impelled by the king's command went out riding on, royal, on the royal steeds and the decree was given out at the citadel in Susa. Now, we cannot read this, I don't think. You know, it's one of those spots in our Bible and Old Testament. We read it and we go, really? You're going to... We're going to kill the women and children too. You know, you, you read that and it hits us a bit hard. Um, there, there's some tension here and I, I can't resolve the whole tension, but I will offer this as what I, I think we need, to, the way we need to take it. You know, some take the tension and resolve it by, by uh, I'm not saying they're wrong, but they re redo the text and paraphrase it in a different way. Some of you might read, who reads from the NIV? 
many of you read, it's the most popular translation. We do the NASB is what we study. But notice how the NIV translates verse 11. You'll see it on the screen. It says, the king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of the enemies. It's humorous in a way, but it's, you know, clearly here, these men, women and children are now Jewish women and children in the NIV. What are they in the NASB? They're Persian. You see that? So relieving the tension in that way. Uh, I don't think we need to relieve the tension. I think we need to hit, stick with the tension and take it as it's written, uh, I think, in the New American Standard. It's, I think, more true to the text, and it's consistent with the storyline. I'm going to give you two reasons for that. Uh, one is literary. Um, uh, Deborah Reed, I'll read a quote from her in a moment, but she makes this point that I'm going to do it this way. Let's just say that Haman's edict went out with five points, this, 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 and this. What the author is showing us by putting it this way and including men with children is that Mordecai's edict is going to go boom, 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 and match it word for word. See, so it's matching it. It's showing us, okay, he was going to do this. No, God's going to come and do this. Now, hold, your, the, hold the brutality of it aside. That is what it is. We'll talk more about that as we get in chapter 9. See that? So literary, from a literary standpoint, it, it, it makes sense. Deborah Reed makes this point in the Tyndale Commentary. It is this point that is primary and that dominates the author's description of the new edict. This is consistent with his story's design and purpose. So the text needs to be interpreted as it stands, rather than be watered down to accommodate modern moral standards. Let me give you a theological reason, and you actually are going to be aware of this one in some way, to t- the reason to take the harder reading. Alistair Begg helped me on this as he taught in this passage. Now, in this day and time, you know, redemptive history, right? We're moving through redemptive history. We're not even to the cross yet. Do you and I go out and kill men, women, and children? No. In the New Testament church, we lead with love, right? Uh, we, 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 our battle's not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers, authorities, et cetera, et cetera. So no, we don't do that. But at this time in redemptive history, God redeeming Israel, shaping a nation through whom Messiah would come, chosen people, you see, in this way, the law at this time was, and it's interesting because you guys, you guys actually know it, the law was eye for an eye and Wow, you guys know the Old Testament law, and that's how they they did it. Now, we come back and we go, man, that is so brutal. Well, think about it in this way. It's, in fact, a restraint and a governor. You take my eye, I'm going to take your eye. You take my tooth, I'm going to take... It's equal, you see? So there's no, you did this to me, I'm going to do way more to you. Do you see that? There's a governor on their actions. And it's the same here with this decree, And it makes sense to me because in our flesh, what do we do when we're harmed? Do you kind of go, I mean, you know, think about siblings or anything like that, but, but, you know, someone hurts you, do you just kind of go, okay, I'm going to hurt you exactly how you hurt me? I I don't know. I don't. You tend to get hurt and you go, I'm going to pound you in this way. Anybody at all have any inklings or struggles with a tiny bit of road rage? I, I do, you know, someone cut, cuts me off or someone does something. Thank God I don't get the opportunity to, to say to them or to do to their car, you know, or whatever, you know, what I want to do because it's, I want to go so far beyond. It made me think of fried green tomatoes. Do you remember the parking lot road? Tawanda and that Volkswagen parked in her spot and, you know, cut in front of you. Remember that? And then bam, 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 she just pounds it. See, that's our flesh. God puts a restraint, you see, 
on that even as this decree goes out. We're going to read over the next two weeks, chapter 9, and you'll note that only men are killed or recorded. I don't know, you know, that's what's recorded is that these men were killed. And you'll see three times that they do not take the plunder. Okay, the reversal to plea the decree. I'm going to end on the celebration, verses 15 to 17. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Again, reversal was Haman when it was Haman. and Did Haman ever go out like this? No, you see God reverses out in the royal robes for Mordecai. Verse 16, the Jews, for the Jews there was light and gladness and joy and honor. In each and every province and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday, a good day. And many among, excuse me, many among the peoples of the land became Jews, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. I'm going to comment on the celebration as we take the Lord's table. I want to comment first on the fruit of their celebration, the result of their celebrating and activities. Notice what happened. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. I don't want you to miss this. Here's an instance. How about this? An instance when the Jews in Persia had an influence on the Persians versus the Persians having an influence on the Jews. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. It's wonderful. Isn't that not a picture of the church? I mean, we live in an alien land so much. How much, where and how much do we have an influence on our culture versus our culture have an influence on the church? And it's a beautiful picture of the Abrahamic covenant. For, For God said to Abraham, through you all nations will be blessed. I assure you, as these Persians became Jews, they were blessed, you see. So we even see the covenant it lived out in the Old Testament prior to the coming of Christ. Joyce Baldwin says this, only here in the Old Testament is reference made to people of other races becoming Jews. Wow. Now, secondly, I don't want you to miss this. I don't think it's an accident that at this point, it's at this point that they become Jews. It's when they see the people of God responding to God in their choices, in their actions, in their life. It's like, how am I going to say it? It's like our theme, veiled providence. It's like the people of the land, what did they see? They saw visible faith in God's people and boom, they become Jews. And is this not true in our own lives? Ray Steadman, uh, many years ago, a pastor in California said this, quote, in the eyes of the world, it is not our relationship with Jesus that counts, it's our resemblance to him, end quote. Oh my gosh, this, this, this is so true. It's when our faith becomes visible, when your choices and mine are, are such a way that someone who doesn't know God says, that's different. That's something's going on in their life. See, that, it's in that moment that our lives become an irresistible influence. It's not, you don't have to preach it. Hey, do this. This is what you need to do to be a Christian. You, it, you, you, we do proclaim the gospel, but you live it. You, they, they saw their lives and they became Jews. When our salvation means more than, you know what, I'm gonna be in heaven. I hope you get there too. But becomes, God is my life. This word is the, authority of my life. These are the values I will live by. When that's reflected in our life, you see, 
then the gospel is going through us. God providentially, y'all, he did then, he does today. He works in such a way and puts us in places where he delivers us, where he reverses, he, he redeems, he changes us. And in the process of doing that, Christ is formed in us. And as Christ is formed in us, Christ is proclaimed through us, through our lives, even as it is here in this story. Now we're gonna continue the celebration at the Lord's table. And so I'm gonna ask the ushers if they would pass out the elements for the Lord's table. If you have placed your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, please join us at the table. I know we have guests here today, but come to the table and celebrate together. Here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to take the bread and I'd like you to take the cup and I'm gonna ask you to hold it. Okay, so it's gonna be passed. Luke's gonna play a little bit behind me here for a moment as we come to this table. And then I'm gonna continue to teach because I wanna make a point and I wanna invite you to think about something as we celebrate the table. So hold the bread and hold the cup and then I will instruct you and we'll take it together in a moment. I want us to ponder and think seriously about this joy and gladness and celebration, okay? So you're gonna have to take those elements and then you can peer back up here and continue to listen to me. Now, at this moment of celebration, joy, feast, let me ask you a question. Have the Jews been delivered yet? It's not a trick question. I just want to nail it down. Have they been delivered when they're celebrating? No. Now, I, don't, I can't be dogmatic on this. I'm, I'm inferring some stuff from it, but I, I just want to make, this is almost devotional to think about. They haven't been delivered, yet they're celebrating. There's joy. So it seems in some way they have reached forward to a future deliverance and brought it back to their present circumstances, celebrated and had joy. I think there's something in this for us. Uh, I don't know about you, okay, but for me, my joy meter can go like, you know, some, some of you have a pretty steady joy meter, which is awesome. I wish I had more of a steady joy meter. It's always good, you know, joy's good. My joy goes like this. Something good happens, circumstance works out. Joy, 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 joy. Something bad happens. No joy, no joy, no joy. You know, I, I, and then joy, 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 joy. No, no, you know, I can just kind of go like this. And now I know joy is a fruit of the Spirit. So joy is a consistent opportunity for us as believers. So sometimes my joy does this way because of sin, quite frankly, because I'm not walking in the fullness of the Spirit. I'm not trusting the Spirit. So I understand that. But I think there might be a little bit of an element of this in it. How much, am I, how much am I absolutely convinced and sure of the reality of my future joy and I'm bringing it back here and even in this difficult circumstances, I can have that joy and hold that joy. Now you go, Lord, what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. Your complete, unblemished, unhindered, unfiltered joy that can't be touched by any circumstance in life ever again, forever, is future. It's not now in a fallen world, in a fallen body, but it is our future. And so there's a degree to which we, we call upon by the Spirit and the Word, because the Word instructs, 
of that certain future joy. And even in the difficult circumstances, we take that joy and we have a measure of it here. I think about uh, Hebrews 12 too. I thought about this as I'm reflecting on it. You remember the writer of Hebrews is writing to a people when they're in a very difficult time and he's saying, you know, you can have joy and faith, walk by faith in this difficult time. And he says of Jesus, Hebrews 12, 2, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, Jesus, Garden of Gethsemane. The joy was set before him. It wasn't the cross. It was the joy, the right hand of the Father, accomplishing redemption. But between him and that joy was a cross. That was hard. And it's the same way for you and I, is it not? I mean, we stand in a we're sitting in a place today in our fallenness and a fallen body and we've got life to live and there's joy. Please don't hear me saying there's no joy. No, there is joy. But we secure a good measure of that joy, I think, by reaching forward by the power of the Spirit and the instruction of the Word to hold that future joy even now in this place. So we hold a bread, piece of bread, and we hold a cup, the bread symbolic of Jesus' body broken, the cup symbolic of his blood poured out. And where does that leave us? Well, I think it could leave us here. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11 of the Lord's table and says, when we, when we celebrate this table, this is symbolic of his body and his blood, we are remembering what Jesus did. There's a historical moment in time when Jesus his body was crucified. His blood was poured out and he died, buried, raised again. But we also, in this bread and cup, it says we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And so it's got that future component. So we live in between when he came and when he's coming. And we hold the bread and the cup. I think it's a great picture of this. Listen, wherever you are right now, and the providence of God does not feel good for you. And there's no way out. And I don't think this ship's turning. Jesus is with you. This is what we're saying. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus said, I'm with you to the end of the age. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Isn't this what we're doing in the table? Mindful of that. And so I'm going to give you a minute just to pray. You talk to Jesus, thanking him for his presence, asking him what you need, acknowledging his presence is enough. He's enough. Would you do that for a moment and then we will take these together. Lord Jesus, for your body broken, we give thanks. Thank you for living the life we could not live. Perfection, holy. We thank you for the cup, the blood poured out, your life poured out for us. You absorbed the wrath that sin deserved and you took the separation from the Father that our sin earned. You took it in our place and so now we need not fear ever being separated from God. And that physical death in and of itself is simply the step to life eternal forever in unblemished joy with you. We give thanks. Take and eat the bread and drink the cup. I said we would sing a song. Let's stand together. Uh, why would we sing now? Because 
when we need to reach out for future joy, you know sometimes how we do it? In a song. It's almost like, you know, the you know, lyrics, but the music and our singing, it's, it's an emotional experience. It's like, I'm going to hold that. And a song can often bring that to our presence. We're going to sing about the foundation of that joy. It is the blood of Jesus. Now, it's a little bit of a different rendition of a somewhat familiar song. You'll get the chorus, but let's sing along from the heart, mindful that our joy is secured by unblemished blood. <laughs> 